This is Hope Illuminated. I'm Sally Spencer Thomas. Incivility is all around us. People shouting to be the voice that's loudest, gossiping, discounting, demeaning, interrupting, and violently attacking one another. This has got to stop. In today's conversation, we talk about civility, and at the heart of civility is dignity, respect, and a willingness to deeply listen to another's differing perspective. Come, learn how we can turn off our own alarm bells and make civility a priority in a divisive world. Today, I interview Sajel Thacker, an employment law attorney with lots of personal and professional expertise on this topic. Come, take a listen. Hello and welcome to the 79th episode of the Hope Illuminated podcast, your source for the stories, science, and strategy of resilience, mental health promotion, and suicide prevention, where we live, learn, and work. I'm your host, Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas, and I'm on a life mission to empower communities with solutions that help people overcome isolation and despair and rekindle a passion for living. Each episode, we're joined by international experts who inspire hope and offer real guidance. Welcome to the show. I'm so grateful that you're here. Today, we have a very timely and important topic. I call it turning off the alarm bells, how to prioritize civility in a divisive world. We live in a world currently where there is very, uh, where every dissenting comment is seen as a personal attack. Watching the Twitter feeds and debates on the news channels is almost guaranteed to raise blood pressure as people increasingly interrupt each other, demean each other and disconnect and discount from one another. In fact, a global poll by McKinsey and Company found that 62% of employees reported that they were treated rudely at work at least once a month. And this poll has been given since 1998. And every year we have increases in rudeness and incivility. Uh, and so this is a very concerning issue. What is the outcome of this behavior? People feel disconnected. Loyalty to their community drops. Frustration can lead to distrust and even violence. By contrast, at the heart of civility is respect especially when others have diverse experiences and viewpoints. This is not about complacency or capitulation. It's not about denying strong feelings or placating them to enforce the status quo. It's really about suspending these alarm bells for a period of time and doing the hard work of climbing the wall of empathy to find deep understanding around the narratives behind our polarized views. I was recently listening to a podcast by Krissa Tippett and she interviewed a woman named Arlie Hoschild um, who had written a book called Strangers in Their Own Land. Um, this woman was a Berkeley native. Uh, she says, you know, a left-leaning person. And she went to the deep South in Louisiana to spend time 
putting aside her views to listen deeply, uh, to understand them and to understand their deep story. So it's about getting curious and caring for the quote other. Um, and the motion is really the foundation of all of our social and political life. So this is uh, some of the direction we'll be heading today. Um, and I'm now very excited to introduce our special guest. My guest today, Sajel Thacker, dubs herself as the Chief Civility Officer. And she's not your average employment law attorney. She has more than 15 years of experience advising clients, human resources personnel, and legal counsel regarding sound standard employment practices. And through that, she uncovered a need and a personal passion for bringing more proactive, relevant, and impactful workplace training programs to her clients and their teams. So welcome, Sajel, to the show. I'm really thrilled you're here. Thank you so much, Sally. I'm excited about this conversation. Talk about time. Yeah, I know, I know. Very, very timely. Um, so, you know, we've just gotten begun on our conversation uh, together around civility, but I've known you've, you've done a lot of thinking about this and a lot of work in training workplaces. Where did this passion for civility and understanding it and building tools for people, where did that start? You know, it goes all the way to my childhood, Sally. Um, when I, when I think about my childhood, I really feel like I led two different lives. You know, um, my parents, I'm a daughter of Indian immigrants. And here's, here's a little fun fact about me. I was actually conceived in India and born in Chicago. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> talk about the definition of marginal, right? I mean, that should be like my middle name. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, was, it was difficult at home. Um, my parents barely spoke any English. They came, they immediately started working. And so I was trying to always kind of fit into two different worlds. At home, I was expected to meet my parents' values, traditions, the religion, the culture at home. And then the minute I walked out the door, you know, I was trying to fit into the American culture. And so trying to reconcile the American culture with the expectations of my parents it really sort of left me feeling that sort of fish out of the water syndrome. You know, I always kind of felt like just two different lives altogether. And um, this tension started to really um, come out as frustration, as anger, as I got a little bit older, and I'll talk to you a little bit more about that. But going back to that duality experience in my life, you know, my parents were as traditional as they came. And so I always, felt like I was explaining to them what was going on outside, basic things about the American culture, like things like dating, going to the prom, having sleepovers. So I was always having to communicate to them and help them see that these are just basic aspects of the American culture and we need to adapt if we're gonna live in this country. So I felt like I hid my sort of American side from my parents all the time as I was growing up. So, but I always, I ended up feeling like I didn't, I never fit in anywhere. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, we, got, we, I, we call that um, kind of like the betwixt and between kind of situation where you've got one foot in one world, one foot in another world. And what actually happens is you get rejected from both worlds because you're not enough of the world there. You're in the opposite place. And so I can, I can um, appreciate in hearing you describe it of, of how disconcerting that must have been for you, that you had to be one part of yourself here and another part of yourself there and couldn't really be your full self in either place. Yeah. I mean, it just makes you feel like you don't fit in anywhere. 
Mm. You know, and then on top of that, what so so always feeling like you're an outsider looking in, both at home and then when you're out of the house too. Um, and so, you know, communicating with them, you know, and having to talk them through these issues, it also led to a lot of conflict at home. Right. So they had different expectations. I was like, those are outdated. They don't apply right now. Um, so they, you know, they would tell me things like you're being too American or you're just being selfish. Right. So a lot of this created conflict at home. And so what I did was I kind of just threw myself into the books. Right. And just kind of that was my escape out is like, I'm just going to study. And that was my escape out. Like, I didn't get to do the things like dating or going to prom. I, I didn't get to do those things because that just wasn't part of what they agreed with. So I bring all of that up because it really leads to what I do now, which is a lot of the belonging, you know, inclusion and belonging work, because the silver lining of having gone through those experiences is that I can really sort of bring my authentic self. I'm able to relate to people of all walks of life, right? Because I've gone through these situations and I'm the annoying, overly inclusive person now, right? Because I don't want anybody feeling like they don't fit in anywhere. So then on top of all of that, what ended up happening was we were the only Indian family growing up in an all Italian neighborhood. So I was dealing with all of this stuff at home. And then outside the home, I was dealing with discrimination up close and personal. So to make it even worse, my parents owned a convenience store right across from our elementary school, literally kitty corner from our elementary school. So here the kids would go to the store before school, during lunch, after school, see my parents who, you know, obviously weren't from there. Um, they looked different. My parents had the accent. You know, they still wore, sometimes my mom would wear the Indian clothes. She would wear the little dot on her head, you know, and so that would lead to the kids bullying me and harassing me when I was at school, right? So that, you know, the, the, all of those things are really important because, I found myself sort of not fitting in at home, but not fitting in outside the home. So really sort of walking that fine line. Um, again, silver linings now in hindsight, you know, we look mm. back on that is that that allowed me to sort of relate to everybody to through tough situations, kind of fit in. So all of that led to what I do right now, which is really trying to help organizations create better workplace cultures. And so that's why I was mm. really, I jumped on board when you said, would you like to be on the committee? And I'm like, yes, I would. <laughs> yes, yes. We need more of your perspective and training everywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just um, thinking, trying to connect the dots on how that uh, history, it, it's clear what you do now, but you have also been an employment lawyer. So can you talk about how that history also led you to that place as well? Absolutely. So, you know, I was that child, um, the, the little girl who's always asking why all the time. Right. I was asking why about things that were going on at home, but I was asking things about all the why about why are what, you know, why are they calling me names? Why are they, you know, telling me to go back to my, so I was always asking why about all the things that I was going through. And it was probably right around when my dad was, when I was eight or nine, when my dad said at the dinner table, she's going to be a lawyer. She asked why way too much. <laughs> and he was right. I did become a lawyer. And guess what? I still ask why a lot. So. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I, I, I always knew I was going to go to law school. It was, it was something I'd always planned for. I, I got a degree in undergraduate school. I was actually dual majored accounting and finance. And then I just wanted to get to law school. So I just went to one major right at the end. I think I needed a couple more finance classes. So I was like, forget it. I'm going to law school anyway. So that was always the plan. 
Ah, great. Well, that gives you some some gravitas too in this conversation as you're going into workplaces. Um, some great credibility as someone that's trustworthy. <laughs> so um, let's also talk a little bit about your angle in this, because it really is uh, an important one, which is around civility. I love your title, Chief Civility Officer. Um, tell us a little bit about how you came to that place and how you define civility uh, in your work. Absolutely. You know, civility is, is, one, is where I focus because what I see as an attorney, what I've seen. So from about 2003 till about eight years ago, I was representing supervisors and leaders in court, specifically dealing with sexual harassment discrimination cases. And so I got to see all of the incivility that was going on at, you know, in workplaces for a number of years. And so I got to see the manager side of it. And, and there I, I realized that, look, once the lawsuit is filed, it's really too late for me to help anybody that we need to be proactive about this, right? So I think it's important to, for organizations to really focus in on civility being a part of their comprehensive plan, because I think when organizations create cultures of psychological safety, right, then people are going to feel more comfortable if they're in distress, let's say they're not feeling good or they need support or they're dealing with misunderstandings or incivility, they're going to come to their supervisor and have the conversation before it's too late or before the lawsuit is filed. So I focus on incivility. Uh, and so first, I think it's important to, for me to explain what I mean by incivility in the workplace, because I include all range of behaviors. So things from people being rude, you know, making um, insensitive comments, it, it includes abusive conduct, bullying, all the way to your illegal discrimination and harassment. So all of that is incivility. And if you allow that to continue, it, you know, we've seen organizations that have done this, they've allowed it to continue. And now it's become normal. And then it leads to a toxic work environment, right? So the problem with toxic work environments is they hurt both the employer and the employee. Nobody wins in these situations. I mean, uh, the Society of Human Resource Management came out with a study recently where they said the truth is that toxic work environments cripple organizations, right? So this statistic always gets me, is they reported that employee turnover caused by toxic workplaces in just a period of five years, again, only focusing on employee turnover was $223 billion Whoa. in five years. So I think it's important to understand that these, these behaviors, you know, it's, it, you always start seeing sort of these rude, unprofessional comments. It kind of builds up to that point before it becomes illegal. So I focus in working with organizations. Let's be proactive. Let's empower your employees, your managers to be able to identify these behaviors when they start to happen, right? So that we can interrupt that progression all the way to it becoming illegal. Let's get, when somebody says something rude or unprofessional, whether it's intentional or not, let's teach people and empower them with the skills to be able to say, hey, you know, maybe you were just joking, but for me, because of my culture, because of my life, because of my experience somehow, that makes me feel uncomfortable. So we wanna create these cultures of psychological safety when people do that. And so as far as the definition, of civility, I really like using this definition by Dr. Cynthia Clark. She's a leading expert, and for anybody wanting to learn more about her research, which I highly recommend, um, she, I love her definition. So this is the definition I use in my work. Um, she defines civility as an authentic respect for others, 
requiring time, presence, a willingness to engage in genuine discourse and an intention to find common ground. So that's her definition, you know, but I think for companies, you know, you could create your own definition. So you create what I like to say a civility plan, right? So you define what civility means for your organization. Obviously we know that leadership is important and ultimately, you know, you want to put the systems into place so that everybody in the organization understands that they play a role in helping foster civility in the workplace. So it's a choice. It's a choice each and every single one of us have to make. We're all different, you know, and what might be okay for me or how I perceive things may not be the same for everybody else. So we have to teach people how to navigate through these differences, how to deal with these issues as they're happening. Love it. And I really do appreciate that definition. We'll, we'll put that into the show notes because I think it's a great place to start as people are developing their own civility plans. Um, and and the, the concept that I'm, I'm really resonating with is that intentionality, that it, it's easy to stay in surrounded by people that think the way we do, see the world the way we do. Um, there's safety there, um, but we actually don't grow when we are in our own echo chambers, it takes courage, it takes patience, it takes compassion and a very intentional, I got to turn down the alarm bells that are going off in me because you see things very differently than me. And if I can do that, and I, I'm going to repeat that a couple of times because that's actually a really important step because if our alarm bells are going off, we can't hear anything. <laughs> so we got to calm ourselves down and then make the intentional choice to find the common ground. And that is where civility happens. And we can agree to disagree. Uh, that's totally fair, um, but we will respect how that person got to the place of their decision if we can calm down long enough to really deeply listen. So I love that. And I also really love this idea of coming up with a, with a system or a community plan for how we're gonna hold each other accountable. Can you talk a little bit more about what that plan entails, how it gets developed, and do you have a story or two um, that you can share about when that has worked really well? Yeah. So, you know, again, with the civility plan, the first thing you want to do, like, you want to look at your core values. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this, it is the most um, frustrating thing for me as an attorney, or even in the work that I'm doing now, consulting with uh, organizations, where I'm talking to leadership and I ask them what their core values are, and they don't know what they are, right? So first thing is, is you, I tell you, I say, start with making civility a core value, define it clearly is what you mean by civility and then communicate that to everybody within the organization and that you know it starts at the top there's no way around it the commitment to civility starts at the top right then you communicate it to everybody within the organization and then responsibility has to be shared throughout the organization right so here's a story you know one of the things that i've seen come up over and over again in my work is where employees say that they don't trust their leadership, right? And so when I ask them details about that, they'll tell me things like, well, our leaders talk very positively of a workplace culture, but then their actions don't line up with their words. There aren't the resources behind it. They don't have the education behind it, et cetera. And so oftentimes what employees have told me is that they found their leaders to be disingenuous or not authentic. And then over time, this leads to mistrust and distrust, and it leaves employees feeling psychologically unsafe, and then they feel emotionally taxed about the whole situation, right? So, so when they feel this way, what are they going to do? 
right? They told me that they would draw. I mean, I've been in a, a toxic work environment. You know, what did I do? I withdrew. You know, I had fear. I didn't want to be at work. I felt excluded. You know, I would take longer lunches, leave earlier, come in later. And, and pretty soon it was impacting my own productivity. And then again, you let this go on long enough and it's an open door to a toxic work environment. Not to mention the exhaustion that comes from constantly calibrating. Am I in a safe place? Who do I trust? What am I, what's expected of me? Why do not, why do I not feel like I belong here? Very hard to engage your creative and, uh, and kind of highly productive and efficient self when your brain and body are constantly trying to figure out, you know, who am I and where am I, <laughs> you know, and where, where can I be safe? Um, so that also compounds on a very deep level, on like a soul level. You know, when you talked about your experiences growing up, I was I was feeling for you around how challenging that must have been as this young person who desperately wanted to belong and engage and learn and and yet always kind of wondering, you know, calibrating who you were in the different situations. All right, so we've got uh, a group of people. They're coming into these core values. They're making them a priority. Um, we're getting leadership on board, helping them do a self-check on: Am I walking the talk? Am I really um, showing in in a, in a deep and profound way that I'm living out these core values and having civility be one of them? Am I modeling that? Um, what are some of the other parts of the plan? Yeah, and so accountability, right? Accountability is critical, and it really needs to be something where you're going to reward people for meeting with, you know, doing what's in compliance with the civility plan. So one of the things that I recommend for organizations is consider evaluating your executives, your managers on their commitment to civility and how they treat people, right? So make it a performance measure. Businesses are saying they care about civility, then make it a performance measure, you know, reward those that are act doing what they're supposed to be doing and penalize those that are not. So this is going to send a huge message to everybody within the organization that they consider civility as being a core value of their company, right? So you have to be proactive about this. I mean, it's, it's, it's too late once you're trying to put bandages on things, be proactive. So if you, you need to empower your employees to be a part of the solution so that if they see people not acting in accordance with the core values, right, that they feel empowered to either address those situations themselves or report it to their managers so that somebody in the organization can deal with it before it leads to that toxic work environment, which we're, we're trying to avoid. Yeah, I love that too, because um, by making it part of the performance evaluation or the employee handbook or the onboarding process, you're starting to put uh, infrastructure around policies, procedures, this is what we recognize and reward. This is what we measure. Um, and so then it's far more likely to be sticky uh, and uh, something that people are paying attention to because it's part of the, it's not just, oh, isn't that cute? They're over there working on civility or that's a nice thing to do when we have time. No, you're actually gonna get you know rated and potentially not get a, a promotion or a raise because you're not doing these things. Um, or you know our company is not gonna thrive if we're not doing these things and having that built into not just the, the messaging, but the actual mechanisms of the company. It's really great. Excellent. So um, anything else about the plan that we should know of at, in, this, in this brief way to get people thinking about how to bake this in? Well, yeah. And so again, back to the bystander intervention training. I mean, it's really the bystanders that are such an important part of this, you know, because if, 
you know, it's asking too much for the person that is on the receiving side to do all the educating, to do all of the reporting and so forth. It's really everybody else that's observing this behavior. They need to be prepared so they know what to do if they witness it happening somewhere else. So bystander intervention training is critical. The other part of that too is unconscious bias training. You know, um, it's important you know, and I almost hate saying this now that we have these conversations because I know we're seeing that everybody, everywhere, but it's true. Unless we have the conversations about the fact that we have different viewpoints from each other, there's racism, there are biases, unless we talk about microaggressions, you know, unless we talk about these issues, we can't solve the problem. Because here's the thing, there is no one size fits all solution to this, right? Every organization, the people within your organization are different. And so you have to take a look at who do you have, what you're working with, and you have to empower people to talk about these issues and bring their whole selves to work so that we can figure out who we're dealing with and then figure out a plan to fit that organization, right? So all of that has to go into it. And then of course, it's not a one-time thing. Right. One training is not going to solve your problem. It's an ongoing thing the, the key is, is that when people leave these trainings, they come out feeling empowered that they can do something about it and contribute to the culture of the organization. Hmm. That's such a key point right there. So I just want to um, underscore it. I think uh, sometimes training in, in this space uh, is shame based um, or uh, you know, you, you awful other people kind of thing, which does not work. It just makes people more entrenched and more like, well, you know what, forget it. I feel horrible here. I feel very, um, you know, blamed. And uh, so I'm not going to engage at all, or I'll give you lip service, but we're just going to go back and do what we were doing and lip service. So you get off my back and then we'll just go back to do what we're doing. And, and so it is very delicate and important thing to come alongside each other. And as I was describing with the woman who went to Louisiana, like really spending time listening to understand their deep story of why they have come to their position. Um, and that takes a whole lot of strength to do that. Um, and a whole lot of willingness, knowing that if you go through this thing, that's hard on the other side, everybody's better. You're better. They're better. We're better. Everything improves. Um, so to, to wade through those feelings of, uh, of being uncomfortable to do that. Um, so this is just a fantastic uh, a recipe here for, for success in this space. And you've offered some very concrete things here. Um, what do you say to the naysayers? So as I was preparing for this and reading some of these articles around civility, you know, you hear these things about, you know, just being complacent or um, kind of just, you know, getting everybody to a status quo and that there is there is space for kind of the very vocal and fierce activism that's kind of in your face to shake people up and get them woke and kind of where do you, or, or the, the truth of the matter is that sometimes the loudest voice in the room does win for a period of time. People do respond to that because it's like, whoa, you know, we got to do something here or we're going to get more of that. You know, how do you respond to those who say this is just, you know, placating and, you know, it's, it takes too much time or the people who downplayed the importance of this. Yeah. I mean, it is going to take a lot of time. There's no, there's no disputing that, you know, but look, like you said earlier, shaming people into it, trying to like shove this down their throat about changing their attitudes and perceptions. 
That's not going to work. We have to get everybody in and everybody needs to be accountable. And so I just do this. I do it from this angle. And, and, you know, it's because as an attorney, what I've seen is that I've worked on policies. I've done workplace investigations. I've looked at systemic issues, but here's the thing, unless people own who they are and what they bring to the table, how can we create these systemic changes, you know? And so my, my response is one thing we do know though, for sure, is that behavior is a good indicator of how people are gonna react or behave in the future. So let's look at how they're behaving. I can't change your perception or a belief on something, but we can say here are the parameters of how we're gonna behave and research supports this, right? Over time, as people's behaviors change, their attitudes change as well. Their beliefs change as well. Because all of these positive benefits that come along with civility in the workplace, now it's not, no, it's not this thing anymore about us versus them. It's about us because we're all at work and we all, at the end of the day, you take everything else away. One thing we all have in common, and we have a lot in common, right? So I always say res res relentlessly search for the common ground. But the one thing I can speak on behalf of everybody is that we all want to be treated with dignity and respect. So if we put all our efforts on focusing on that one area, I think that all the other, and don't get me wrong, I don't think the other areas are not important. You need to talk about you know, these other issues. Right. But I think if we focus in on this and put more of the resources behind this, we're going to get a lot further than the other way around. Mm, yes. And I, I, I liked your point, too, there about it's going to feel clunky at the beginning, like any change process. It's going to feel awkward. It's not going to feel like yourself. And I was uh, just on another training earlier today where we talked about this process of, of change, whatever it is, Um being like learning how to ride a bike, you know, the first time you're going to fall and it's going to feel awful and you're going to have a bruise and then, you know, it's going to be slow, but at some point the procedural and muscle memory, you don't even think about it anymore. And like you said, you get all the benefits, you get the benefits of being able to coast downhill when it's easy, of being able to feel a sense of accomplishment when you've pedaled all the way up the hill. Um, and, uh, and then it just becomes something that you're focused on rather than something that seems so hard. Um, so that's, uh, that's another really good thing. Um, the other metaphor that we that I wanted to bring up is, uh, gardening, right? So once you get it started, you can't just let it go, um, uh, because all of your beautiful flowers are going to die that you have to go in and ongoing, take out the weeds, give it the water and the sun and the fertilizer, pay attention. Um, and then it will continue to, to grow and thrive. Um, so I know you've, you've dropped in a couple of um, important pieces of, of research here. What are other things that you've been learning around research of civility? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I was going to say was too around civility, you know, I talked about bystander intervention, but I think it's important for everybody to understand that we're dealing with situations where people are going through a lot of stress, right? Their relationships, financially, the pandemic, the I mean, just everything is nightmare, right? So I think from a civility standpoint, when you have all these factors coming in, it's going to increase the amount of stressors that people bring into the workplace. And then depending on how many stressors you're dealing with, that's going to impact the level of incivility in the workplace. So I think, again, back to the bystanders, we need to be able to look around and pay more attention to what's going on in the workplace for those distress signals before it's too late, before that person, again, harms themselves, right, or somebody else, so that we look out for these red flags, right? So, you know, it's, it's important to not be careful of snapshots, but focus on, are you seeing 
significant changes in the behaviors of the people around you, right? And, and just because we might not be in front of each other, you know, that doesn't mean that people are not giving out these distress signals to their coworkers. So I think unlike any other time that we've seen before, because of so many, over 50% of the workforce now is working from home, that we need to pay attention to distress signals coming on text, on Zoom, on email, and, and not forget that people are dealing with a lot. And so we need to check in on each other more and make sure that we're not just walking around with our blinders. So look for people, are they withdrawn during these conversations? Do you see lack of motivation, significant changes in the way they look, their personality, a lot of these red flags. So I think we need to include as part of the civility plan in, in what do we look out for, mm-hmm. you know, including for suicide prevention or workplace violence. What are some of the things, because people are not, you know, the education, we really need to raise more awareness on those issues. Mm, absolutely. And I, and I really appreciated the, the piece where you said, um, you know, the more stressors we have on us, the more we have risk of this instability. And, and again, that's very biologically based when we are experiencing threat, um, whatever that is, our natural inclination is self-protection or self and those closest to me, me and my family got to protect us first. And we hunker down into what's ours and we defend against the other. Um, and so it takes even more intentionality, even more awareness to make sure that we're not doing that because we also have an opportunity and we've seen this in many large scale disasters. We saw it at the, at the beginning of COVID where we, we pull together, like that's another human response. We know that when we have a major threat, if we pull together as a community, we're far more likely to survive it. Again, biologically based. So that's what civility is about, is how do we, how do we tend towards that kind of response rather than the, this is me and mine and you guys get out of here, right? Um, so that's, a, again, if you have that as a core value, if it's being recognized and reinforced throughout all these things, you're reminded, get out of your own head, look more broadly and, and take the time to understand. I also, I want you to expand a little bit on the idea of snapshots, because I also think this, is, this has been a tendency that we have fallen into again and again and again, and it just gets everybody riled up. You see like one image on your Twitter feed or one five second video or one quote taken out of context and you're like see there those people are doing those things again um and yet when you broaden out the lens and see more of the beginning the middle and the end it uh, usually not always but usually a different or much more nuanced story emerges can you talk about the role of widening the perspective beyond the snapshots and how that's related to our conversation around civility yeah i mean look I, I, if the easiest way to explain that is this, is if you know, every person's different and how resilient we are to what we're dealing with and what's going on is going to depend from person to person. But let's say you and I work together, right? If I work with you eight hours a day, I can make a educated guess based on my experiences with Sally to say, okay, if Sally gets bad news, then she's going to, you know, be down for a couple of days and then she's going to come back to kind of like her steady state. Right. And so I mean, there are times where we're dealing with grief or a loss of a loved one where it's going to take us a couple of weeks, right? But we can kind of see, you know, how long is it going to take for Sally to kind of get back to this normal state? Now, if you see somebody, it takes two months, 
you know, you see significant change. They used to be extroverted, talk to everybody in the office, and now they're locking themselves in their office. They've got their headphones on. They're not communicating with people. And it's a matter of two months. Two months is probably too long, right? Somebody should have at, at, at a certain point said, oh, this is something's not going on. Let me check in to make sure she's okay. Does she need my support? Does she need to talk about this? Sometimes just merely asking the question, hey, is everything, everything okay? I'm here if you need support. That opens up the door for that person to then share what is going Going on, and as that person's sharing what's going on, then you can decide if there's additional support or where to kind of guide them, right? So it's important to not make snapshot decisions about people because we are going to deal with situations differently. And since everybody's going through something totally different, I mean, I hated hearing this. I hate hearing this when people keep saying we're all going through the same thing. And I'm like, no, we're not. <laughs> Each and every one of us is going through something totally different in our own individual lives. And so let's not lump everybody into a box and say, this is what's going to work for everybody. It's not. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with different things. So, yeah. And similarly, when people are being uncivil or incivil, when incivility uh, rises, um, one of the things that we know to be true is that hurt people hurt people, right? So when people are acting like jerks or being dominating or just, you know, being exclusionary and you're like, oh my gosh, how could we stand this person? Know that that is actually an expression of how they feel inside. <laughs> and could you imagine how that feels inside day in and day out? Um, you know, to try to understand again, the story behind how they got to that place gives us uh, a moment of, of empathy uh, for somebody who might be treating other people really poorly. I'm not saying to excuse the behavior, but to, to understand more broadly about what, what's happening there. Um, Great. Any other uh, pieces of research or science that kind of uh, uphold some of the things you're trying to teach or uh, trying to get people to change to do differently? Absolutely. I would say, you know, um, a statistic that I wanted to share with you and everybody else is Christine Porat. You know, she's a professor of management at Georgetown University. And, she, and I want to share this because I think it really makes an important point. So she did a study in 2016, right? So this was before everything that we're going through right now. And in her study, she surveyed 10,000 white collar uh, employees. And then she said that 95% of the people in 2016 felt like we already had a civility problem <sighs> at their workplaces. 70% said that it had reached crisis mode. 66% said that they cut back efforts on what they were doing at work. 80% said they lost time worrying about what had happened. And 2% said they left their jobs altogether because there was so much incivility going on at their work. What's notable is this, she found that incivility significantly impacted witnesses mm -hmm. work performance, as well as the person that was dealing with the civility themselves, right? So I bring this out, you know, is that allowing this sort of incivility to continue comes at a steep cost to not just the people that are suffering it, but it causes mental, physical, economic harm to the person that's experiencing it. But even more than that, it, it affects all workers, right? It decreases productivity, increased turnover. It harms the reputation of everybody involved, including the organizations. All of these then, which contribute to the person's overall mental health. And that's a no, whole nother conversation, right? So lots of reasons to really focus proactively on creating cultures of civility. Oh, wow. I have, I will put that
that uh, that study into the show notes. There's a lot there that you just talked about, but that this ripples out and it, it doesn't just impact the person who's the target of the incivility. It's everybody who's being exposed to it. Excellent. Well, let's shift gears now. You talked a little bit about the civility plan. Um, are there other strategies, maybe on an individual level, that may, people might consider um, as they're trying to grow themselves to be more civil? Um, and is it really just about polit- politeness and manners? How you know? How is it different? Yeah. No. I think you know. I I talk about true civility. You know, it's not just being polite. It's like what you said earlier in our conversation, you know, it's when you're dealing with situations where they're, you know, when you've got all these different people together, different perspectives, different beliefs, different values, and you put everybody together, it's, you know, there's always going to be conflict, right? There's going to be misunderstandings between differences. And so it's even more important. So true civility is not just, you know, maintaining um, respect and dignity for each other when you're navigating through conflicts or misunderstandings as they're happening, but also speaking up for other people when you observe this going on. So it's definitely action oriented in this situation. And that's really the only way it works because again, unless you can create an environment where there's psychological safety, right? You can't really get to creating civility. So you really have to be intentional about the whole thing. And, and, and it has to be uniform throughout the organization. If you start seeing inconsistency, managers are not being civil or employees are allowed to get away with it, it's not going to work. So it's really all hands on deck. And you really have to create a comprehensive plan. Now, what I will caution people from doing is a lot of what I've seen organizations where they fail on this is they're trying to lump civility into the diversity inclusion lens and they're very different right so you have to do look at civility differently because when you're looking at diversity and inclusion the goals that you want to accomplish out of those efforts are different than you say more about that say more about that yeah so with diversity and inclusion you're really looking at okay Here's, you know, let's say, for example, you've got multi-generational issues going on. You've got three different generations working together and the leaders are having a hard time communicating with the, you know, the baby, you know, millennials that are coming in. That's going to require a different type of training, a different type of approach than civility, which is something that's going to apply to everybody within the organization, right? So I, I look at it like civility being the floor of where we want to get everybody to. And then now we're going to work on these specific issues that are present dealing with the diversity that you have there separately. They can't be combined. And, and so I, I see organizations kind of dumping civility into the diversity inclusion bucket. And I'm like, no, because civility applies to everybody in the organization. Now, some of these other conversations have to happen with certain individuals, like privilege, white supremacy, racism. These are different issues, but we can't just jump there without getting to, let's all get along first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sounds good. Um, let's go, well, even maybe uh, the subfloor, right, is the psychological safety stuff. We've got to build the foundation for that so that it's stable enough that we can start building upon it. And um, I want to hear your thoughts on that. I was uh, in, a, in a company not too long ago where in every meeting room, there was a little placard on the in the middle of the table that says, these are our agreements for psychological safety in every meeting. And there's like eight or nine different things that the workers had agreed to about creating space for all voices and um, you know there, I can't remember them all at this point but they were they were I was like wow that's super cool so when people are trying to improve their psychological safety what are some of these very tactical things you recommend that they agree to in, in how they treat each other yeah so for example connect 
with your coworkers, be present, make time to get to know the people around you. I mean, one of the saddest things I see is when I'm doing some of these trainings, you know, and I'm training all around the world, but when I'm doing these trainings and I walk in and I see two people sitting next to each other and I'm like, they don't know the basic information about each other. How can we be getting along and be on the same team when we don't know basic information? So you have to make time to get to know your coworkers, you know, ask questions learn about different perspectives, learn about their side of the story, you know, and, and it's all about, again, coming back and cultivating that culture where everybody understands that we're going to have differences and different perspectives, but we're going to deal with situations in a, in a professional and respectful way to address these behaviors. The other thing I think is very important, you know, organizations really need to raise awareness on what are some of the resources that are available for people if they're dealing with incivility or they're dealing with stressful situations. So, you know, a lot of companies, you, I've talked to employees where they don't even know they had an EAP or what the EAP offered, right? So if employees are not even aware they have one, where are they going to go when they're feeling distressed or they're in these situations? So make it easy for people to know where to go and what resources are available to them. Mm-hmm. I love how you just keep connecting the dots to well-being and mental health and everything. Cause also I think that people tend to keep those things separate as well. Um, but they are all tied together and they're all tied together under this larger umbrella of our well-being, both individually and collectively, that when we do these things, we're all better selves and we're all better communities. And when we don't, we don't feel good. <laughs> That's the gist. Yeah. So thank you for, for continuing to do that. The other piece that I wanted to just pull out and have you speak on a little bit more was this idea of, you know, advocating when you see things are not going well, don't be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm out of sight. Uh, and I don't want to stick my head up because maybe then I'll get the incivility. There's that fear there that if I'm just quiet in the corner, nobody will bother me. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the empowerment that it takes to do that, to step in the arena and speak up when you're seeing things that aren't civil? Absolutely. I, I think what you want to keep in mind is that progression that I described at the beginning is employees need to know, you know, if something is making them feel uncomfortable, what is the way that I can respectfully and in a professional manner, let this person know that they're crossing a line for me. So helping them understand what their role is, you know, we would, we prefer, and we would like to encourage people to deal with these issues directly. If they're dealing with incivility, now if it's sexual harassment or some sort of retaliation, then obviously you need to follow your company's complaint process and go through it that way. But a lot of times these issues can be resolved just one-on-one, just having the conversation. It's just people haven't felt empowered to be able to address it directly. In fact, I've seen organizations do the, the opposite. They're just saying, if you deal, if you hear these words, just send them to this person. And I'm like, now you're taking away their ability to resolve this conflict or solve this problem on their own. And now you're going to have HR buried in a ton of issues that they got to deal with, right? So helping people understand, and it's very important when you're addressing these situations directly, that it's not with judgment. You're not judging the person. You're not shaming them. You're not blaming them. You're not guilting them. You're simply pointing out the behavior that they've engaged in that has made you feel uncomfortable. And that's very important point. So I want to just make sure I'm clear on that. You know, it's not about making the other person or, you know, this whole cancel culture thing. It's not any of that. It's really about calling them in. You're educating because a lot of times, and I've seen this in my career all the time, is that people don't know 
that what they're saying or doing is making somebody feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I heard it over right. and over again. I wish I would have known that. I wish this person would have told me that. Right. Can you say, can you explain what you meant by cancel culture? Is that what you said? Cancel? Yeah. Yeah. Cancel culture. It's this, you know, it's this idea that somebody says one thing wrong and we're just going to oust them. You know, it's not acceptable. We're not ah. going to tolerate it, you know, but that's not yes. the mentality. We want to go into problem solving. Right. Rather than right. problem es- issue escalation, issue resolution is really where we want to be with that, you know. And so, yeah. So, yeah. So because, again, call out culture is another thing, yeah, right, where we publicly culture. humiliate someone right. for being wrong. Right. Whew, that is so painful, especially when they don't know what they're doing. It's one thing if they're intentionally being harmful and they know it Uh, but it's another thing if they've just stepped into stuff and they just didn't even know that they were doing it um and again that tends to make people woo withdrawal i'm not putting my head up again like or come out fighting one or the other yeah Yeah. so so you want to make sure that people are not going to judge but because the other part of that too is a lot of the microaggressions are coming from a place of unconscious bias right so the person doesn't even know is not aware that this behavior is happening. And so, so that's why you want to be very delicate about how you handle it. The goal of putting the person on about the behavior is to put them on notice. So it's going to be, if they really didn't mean it, if it was unintentional, it was an accident. Most people, when you let them know that they've made you feel uncomfortable, are going to back off. They're going to stop the behavior. That's what we want. We want the behavior to stop. That's the goal. Or that they catch themselves. Because sometimes if you've done it habitually your whole life, it's really hard. You're like, oh, wait, I wasn't, I didn't mean that. Let me try again. Yes. And that try again spirit, well, let's reward the heck out of that. Like you just self-corrected and that's amazing because that's how we learn. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and I do, I mean, I train in this area and I find myself making this, I mean, it's an ongoing process, believe me, it's not a one-time thing, but it's important to keep that in mind. And then this is where I think a lot of work needs to be done is a lot of times people don't understand that these behaviors are microaggressions. So they don't understand that. So they're just saying, this is discrimination. This is harassment. This is bullying because they don't understand that piece that this is Maybe it's some education. The, the way we resolve these issues is going to be handled differently if it's a microaggression versus somebody intentionally discriminating or being a racist or being a sexist, which it requires intention. If it's happening unintentionally, the way we work with that person and how we address that, it's going to be different, right? Mm-hmm. So very, very much sticking to just the fact of the behavior itself and then handling it in a respectful way. Now it stops. If it continues right? Then you follow your company's procedures and policies and report it so that somebody can help. And hopefully bystanders by this point have gotten, understand what their role is in this whole process. Excellent. Any other uh, tips or tactics you want to share with us for either our own individual work on our own civility, interpersonally with the people in our, in our lives or systemically, any other takeaways you want to highlight? Yeah, I, I just, I would want to raise, raise awareness on the whole cyberbullying issue again, you know, because of the fact that everybody is working from home, you know, Zoom and, and, and text and just social media, there's a lot of information going on. And so I think a lot of times when people think of bullying, they think of us being face to face, but cyberbullying is very important. It, is, it has increased tenfold. Hmm. So really, I think for companies and for employees themselves, understand and look at if you're if you're a company if you're a leader that's listening to this right which is what i'm going to assume right now because we're all leaders but 
check your company policies to make sure that is clear what cyberbullying is and give very specific examples of what that looks like. Because I've reviewed policies just this last year where I'm like, this is not sufficient. This is not enough to give people notice of what to look out for. So things like excluding coworkers from meetings or conference calls that are important. So you're not purposefully inviting somebody to this meeting. That's an example of bullying type of behavior withholding critical information. So you know we've got this important deadline and I'm not gonna give you the report you need so that you can do what your work is, right? That's actively sabotaging someone's work performance. Gossip, you know, mm. be on the lookout for gossip and lying. I mean, these are doorways. All of these things are doorways to a toxic work environment. So people need to know and be educated on what to look out for with cyberbullying and what to do in those situations. So again, look at your policy, look at your complaint procedure. You wanna have multiple mechanisms or avenues for people to be able to report because if they're not in the office and they're working from home, you might need to, need to create new processes in place for people to be able to report the bullying and to be able to, you know, and maybe you wanna make it anonymous, right? So think about how you want that to happen but I, I point this out because we're in a very different time now and these policies were drafted, not taking into consideration where we are. So start with looking at your policies and, and make sure that not just the harassment policy, but also your discrimination policies are outdated for a lot of organizations. So review your policies to make sure you're up to date dealing with our current and environment. Because we're dealing so much now in not seeing the whole person in front of us. Uh, so many things are getting misunderstood and misinterpreted because we don't have all the body language or all the tonality or all of the other cues um, in uh, our, our full being. So it's very easy to misinterpret a text or an email that, you know, maybe somebody wrote in haste because their dog needed to be let out, right? And it, was, it had nothing to do with the situation, but it comes across like curt, um, but we don't have all of those ways to check in like, that we do when we're face to face. So that that doesn't fall into category of bullying, but certainly misunderstanding of communication that can lead to hard feelings um, also goes into this so that we have to be ever so mindful of, of how we're communicating because the chances of it going uh, to the left are uh, higher today. So I'm gonna go back and just kind of recap some of the themes. Um, this has been fantastic, Sajel. Thank you so much uh, for all of this richness here. And I just love the way how it cross cuts into all other conversations like productivity Activity and culture more broadly, like uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion work, like mental health and suicide prevention, like this kinds of things shows up everywhere. And again, I'll repeat, the more that we get it right for ourselves, it ripples out, right? We already know that the bystanders will start to see things differently and the company will start to, or whatever organization we're dealing with will start to perform better. Uh, so it's worth the investment of trying to dig in and do this hard work. So you started off sharing your story of kind of living in this betwixt between life. And again, that's just not an easy place to be. And eventually, you know, we all find ourselves somewhere in there. But when you're profoundly with one foot in one world and one foot in another world, it makes even more reason that this becomes a priority because you have to bridge them within yourself. So you have to have that civility within your own being. Um, you gave us a really great definition of civility that really focused on intentionality around finding common ground and the importance of building that subfloor of psychological safety. And we'll put some of your uh, tips and tools in the show notes 
Um, and I also appreciated the, the conversation we had of like pulling back from the thing right in front of you that's getting the alarm bells going, whether that's concern about a person or the fact that they're being uncivil or something is happening there, pulling back and seeing if you can understand and appreciate that deeper narrative. Um, so thank you so much for that. Any final thoughts you have um, to, to give our audience a kind of a little bit of inspiration to close? Yeah, I mean, it's it's more important now than ever that employees can count on their workplace leaders to cultivate a safe and healthy uh, workplace. And, and, and with intentional effort, you can create an environment of psychological safety and foster civility throughout your organization. I would just tell everybody, you know, look, this isn't going to happen overnight. You know, it isn't going to be something that's simple. It's going to be work on for everybody involved and start with yourself. Start to figure out what your own preferences are, what assumptions you're making, what predispositions you have, because we've all gone through different things. What I've gone through shapes the color of the lens that I look at the world. And, and so being able to do that, you have to do the work first. And, and I think we have, to, we have to show grace as we go through this process. You know, we're human beings, we're gonna fumble. We have to be humble through this entire process. We're gonna make mistakes. And let's just, you know, look at it from a, how do we how do we call people in how do we let them know our world our lens what our perspectives are in a respectful way and so just make it an intention you know you have to start with yourself first so mm -hmm. that's my final thoughts on that yeah yeah no i appreciate that's a great way to end it because it's hard and we're going to make mistakes. And so if we give each, give ourselves grace, give each other grace, then there's more room to grow. There's more willingness to go back in and try again. Um, very, very, very well said. Um, this has been fantastic, Sejal. And I know that you have many other tools and trainings that you offer. If people want to connect with you about taking next steps, where's the best way for them to find you? Yeah, I would say, you know, the only social media website I'm on right now is LinkedIn. So if you're on LinkedIn, connect with me there or follow me there. I'm a huge believer in sharing good resources. And so whenever I find a good article or a good resource that is going to help employees or employers, I'm always, I love to share that information because I know there's so much nonsense out there. So I try to just really get good information out there. And then you can always go to my company website, which is trainextra.com. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Um, thank you to all of the listeners who came in and joined us today. And thank you to Dave, our sound editor, who's making us sound great. And to Jessica, who holds all the pieces together for me. I would not be able to function without you, Jessica. Um, and all of, the, all of the folks that are participating in this, in this research and the implementation of civility work. Keep going. We need you so much. <laughs> so um, in closing, open your heart, challenge your thinking, and take action to save lives. Together we can restore dignity and sustain a passion for living.